You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Athletes Mataz Barshim of Qatar and Gianmarco Tamberi of Italy had been friends for a decade since meeting at a World Junior Championship in Canada. Their track and field careers had paralleled each other, including potentially devastating ankle injuries. At the 2021 Tokyo Olympics, they tied for height in the high jump. An Olympic official came over to talk to them about a jump-off, but Barshim said, Can we have two golds? My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So the delayed 2020 Tokyo Olympics happened the other week, complete with 33 sports and 339 events, including four new sports and two discontinued sports brought back from the dead. That's the funny thing about the Olympic Games. The games themselves change almost every time. In terms of new events, you might have seen the karate, skateboarding, sport climbing, or surfing. You might have, I didn't. What I saw of the Olympics was mostly clips on my favorite meme site. The resurrected sports were baseball and softball, last seen at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. The International Olympic Committee had decided to make a commitment to the youth by bringing sports to them in urban environments, a pretty new point of view for the IOC, as well as to increase engagement for youth fans who are passionate about different sports from all over the world, or dispassionate about sports as a whole. These sports are also, not coincidentally, quite popular in Japan. So who decides what stays and what goes? That would be the aforementioned International Olympic Committee. They oversee all aspects of the Olympic Games. They run in it in the common parlance. Of the association's 99 members, many are former athletes or current leaders in athletics from all over the world. Bonus fact, One of the founders of Buffalo Wild Wings was a lifelong figure skater who served on the IOC for a time. The IOC's executive board proposes which sports will be included, and the rest of the IOC votes on them. A sport must cut certain muster to sway those voters. There are five factors split into a further 35 criteria, such as how long has the sport existed, how popular is the sport in the host country, How much would it cost to hold and broadcast the event? And how much value the sport would be to the Olympic legacy? That one's going to come up again in a minute. Sports must also be governed by some international federation and must comply with both the Olympic Charter and the World Anti-Doping Code. Now, I'm more in the Tommy Tiernan camp. Ireland should host the Olympics and will let them take whatever drugs they want. If somebody wants to run the 100 meters in half a second, let him. I want to see him try to slow down when he gets to the bendy bit. That's from his special Something Mental, which I heartily recommend. But it's not just the IOC calling the shots. The host city also plays a role in the decision. 
and they can push for a particular sport to be recognized for the year that they're hosting. I cannot cite a stronger or more surprising example than the next Summer Games 2024 in Paris, which will see the debut of breakdancing as an Olympic sport. They're upwards of 40 years late, if you ask me. A quick pit stop before we progress for a point of clarification. Sport and event are not interchangeable terms here. For example, swimming is a sport, whereas the 100-meter freestyle or 200-meter breaststroke are events. Events come and go not infrequently, but it's more rare for an entire sport to be removed. That being said, it has happened. Since the first modern games in 1896, 10 sports have been removed completely. Those are croquet, cricket, jeu de pomme, a kind of tennis, palata, a sort of ancestral highlight, polo, roque, another form of croquet, rackets, tug-of-war, lacrosse, and motorboating. Not that kind, with an actual boat. For a complete list of defunct events, check out the show notes or the website for a link, yourbrainonfacts.com. Other recent comebacks include golf and rugby for the Rio Olympics in 2016. While some events stage a comeback, some are seemingly gone for good, and good riddance. Like solo synchronized swimming, which I first became aware of from a famous comedian's lazy joke about it. The exclusively female event sees swimmers, either in pairs or groups of eight, dancing in the water in perfect unison and floating in such ways as you can't credit. Solo synchronized swimming was deemed worthy of inclusion in the 84, 88, and 92 games. But apart from swimming, what are you doing? Who are you synchronized to? It surprisingly took the organizers three whole Olympic cycles to realize a person swimming alone is not synchronized to anyone else. Unless they did it in another building, that would be rad. Another aquatic event that got the axe was the plunge for distance. Swimmers would dive into the water, but they weren't judged on that. Neither were they judged for the speed with which they swam. They were only judged on how far their dive took them before they broke the surface of the water or one minute elapsed. The record here was 62 and a half feet, or about 19 meters, set at the very first meet because it was also the last one. This event was only done once at the fairly bonkers 1904 Games in St. Louis, which you can hear more of in the early episode Amazing Races, also linked in the show notes. There's one event I'd actually like to see come back because it sounds like freaking Ninja Warrior, the 200-meter swimming obstacle race. Swimmers had to climb up a pole, clamber over a row of boats, and swim under another row of boats. This event only happened once as well, this time in Paris in 1900, right there in the Seine. That year was also the only time you could see horse long jump and horse high jump. I'm not a huge fan of equestrian sports as a rule, but at least it beats dressage. Why don't I like the horsey stuff? Because the horse doesn't get the medal when they did all the work. Animal-based events have a mixed history in the Olympics. Take, for instance, live pigeon shooting, again in Paris. Was there ergot in the rye or something? No, you know what? It was probably the absinthe. That would explain it. 300 pigeons were killed in the event, 21 by the gold medal winner. Thankfully, this was the only time in Olympic history when animals were killed, 
on purpose. As opposed to the 1988 games in Seoul, where beautiful white doves of peace were released, many of whom decided to perch on the giant torch cauldron thing and whoosh. All-you-can-eat wings. Bonus fact, doves are pigeons, and pigeons are doves. Both names refer to the 300-plus species of the Columbidae family. One long-gone event that sounds like animal cruelty but wasn't was the running deer shooting. Once you've seen the biathlon, which combines cross-country skiing and rifle shooting, you're probably like, sure, why not? Let's shoot some deer while one or both of us is running. The deer here were exclusively deer-shaped targets. If you're the kind of person who says, I'll consider hunting a sport when the animals have guns, good news. In the next event, everybody's got a gun. Because in Stockholm in 1912, pistol dueling was an Olympic event. It wasn't quite as exciting or dashing as it sounds, though, as participants weren't actually firing at each other. More's the pity, might have drawn a bigger crowd. Instead, the competitors drew down on a mannequin dressed in a fine coat. Dueling was a gentleman's pursuit, after all. And in case you were thinking shooting-based events have been phased out, 15 gold medals were awarded for shooting events at the 2012 Games in London. Perhaps the weirdest, least Olympic-y Olympic event was, in their defense, a trial run. But y'all, it was poodle trimming trimming poodles. And guess what city this happened in? (laughs) Cough, Paris, cough. A crowd of 6,000 spectators watched 128 competitors try to clip the fur off as many poodles as they could in two hours. A good friend of mine who worked as a dog groomer told me that poodles take twice as long as other breeds, though schnauzers apparently have hair-like needles when it's time to sweep it up. This event has raised many questions in my mind. How did they control for the size of the dogs? Or their temperament? Also, why were they even considering this for an event? Not that the winner Avril Lafou minded after winning gold with a total of 17 shorn poodles. Beat that, Tokyo. Can you imagine what the ground and everyone's trousers must have been like? A nod to my lovely listeners and old blighty that I said trousers instead of pants, since pants are underwear in British English. And it seems to me that more Brits than Americans are bothered by the word panties. Just an interesting thing I've noticed. The event that really makes me make faces like a meme is race walking. This is a current extant event. Race walking. It's power walking, plain and simple, just like old folks do at the mall when it opens and what the middle-aged ladies in my neighborhood do, always armed with a big stick for some reason. Now, I've lived in this neighborhood for 20 years, and I haven't once encountered an aggressive dog running loose. So maybe the stick's for the other neighbors. Never mind. You carry on with your activities, ladies. Like other events, race walking has strict rules. Maintain contact with the ground and straighten the front knee when the foot makes contact with the ground, keeping it straightened until the knee passes under the body. If a judge sees both feet off the ground, even by a smidge, That's considered lifting, and it calls for a penalty. Still, though, y'all, race walking. One thing that's remained the same, though, throughout the modern Olympics, since some folks in 1896 thought it would be a keen idea to do that 
Greek sports tourney thing but with Victorian clothes on. And that thing is sportsmanship. To be magnanimous in victory and gracious in defeat. It's supposed to be the point of the whole multi-billion dollar global affair. This year has had some great examples. The vanquished sincerely celebrating for and with the champions, and I'm a sucker for a feel-good news clip on social media. But some athletes' good character goes well beyond saying good game, good game. At the 88 games in Seoul, Canadian sailor Lawrence Lemieux was zipping right along, making good time, even though the seas were exceptionally rough at the moment. He had at least the silver medal on lock, when, about halfway through the race, Lemieux heard cries for help. In the near distance were two Singaporean sailors competing in a different event, and they had capsized. One sailor was clinging desperately to the boat. The other was being pulled out by the current. Instead of staying in his race, Lemieux set course for the men, pulled them out of the water, and waited for rescue boats to arrive. By the time rescue came, he'd fallen to 23rd place. Lemieux's bravery did not go unrewarded, though. The Olympic Committee awarded him the Pierre de Coubertin Medal, a special award for sportsmanship named for the founder of the modern Olympics. Lemieux wasn't the only boat-based athlete to stop for someone else's benefit. In the Amsterdam Games in 1928, Australian rower Henry Perch stopped midway through the quarterfinal race to allow a family of ducks to swim across, and he still won the gold medal. The first recipient of the Pierre de Coubertin medal was Italian bobsledder Eugenio Monti, and rightfully so. During the 1964 Winter Games, he helped not one, but two opposing teams in their moment of need. The first act of sportsmanship came in the two-man bobsled event, when British bobsledders suffered a broken axle bolt in their first run. Monti lent them one of his spares. The Brits ended up winning the gold, while Monti and his partner came in third. During the four-man event that followed, the Canadian team, piloted by Vic Emery, suffered damage to their rear axle. Monty offered up his own crew of mechanics to fix it for them. In a similar fate, Canada went on to win the gold, while the Italian team took home another bronze. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. 
Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. On another happy note, we got a book review for the first time in about three months. So again, if you've read the book and you liked it, I'd love if you left a review. I am hoping to get a second one out of the publisher. Short, sweet, and to the point, Laurel says, Five out of five stars, great book, full of wonderful facts. It's an efficient review, and if you're going to be one thing, you should be efficient. The audiobook version of the Your Brain on Facts book, I'm told, is coming soon. I know I've said previously that it was coming soon. Buy me a drink sometime, I'll tell you the whole sordid tale. On the podcast review side of things, Lee Dealey says, Informative and delightful. Looking for conversation starters at your next dinner party? Or wanting to enhance your trivia skills? Welcome to Your Brain on Facts. I adore Moxie and her informative way of delivering insightful truths. She has some funny side commentary, too, joking about her height, where she's from, her family, and other real-life issues. I feel like a better person when I listen to her delightful 30-minute episodes. She feels like a friend rather than a lecturer. Also, the music is the definition of easy listening. It won't deter you from the theme of the episode. Keep making the world a smarter place, Moxie. Thank you from Down Under. Well, thank you, Ashley, for that astoundingly good review, as well as for letting me know that you're listening in Australia. It's amazing sometimes to think that this little show that I put on is heard all around the world. And we have another review, this one from Gabby M., who says, Excellent for fact lovers. Moxie has the perfect voice for audio work, too. Thanks for bringing that up, Gabby, because I wanted to ask my listeners for a special favor. And this goes well beyond the regular stuff like subscribe, leave reviews, join our Patreon, all that stuff. In case you've missed it over the past 13 months, I do professional voiceovers, specifically corporate voiceovers. I'm trying to get myself away from Fiverr and Upwork, where it is a lot of hustle for a small amount of money, and you're basically a vending machine. So I need to make connections with people who work in media and marketing, because those are the industries that make the videos, and the videos eventually need a voiceover. I mean, I also do things like phone menus, explainers, social media ads, TV and radio if they ever come knocking, and long-form content like e-learning, which I love doing, and nonfiction audiobooks. So if you work in media or marketing, or you know someone that does, I'd love to hear from you. The best way for this particular contact would be through my LinkedIn page, because I'm trying to do this, you know, real professional. LinkedIn.com slash EN slash Moxie Labouche. Though frankly, if you start searching Moxie on LinkedIn, you're going to find me pretty quickly. There are so many Olympic athletes with amazing stories, you could spend a lifetime telling them all. But there's one man in particular I want to spotlight, an amazing natural athlete who could place in sports he'd never practice. Wothohuk, which means bright path. But you've probably heard his legal name, Jim Thorpe, once called the greatest athlete in the world. His story has always fascinated me, and I feel like I've really been falling short of my goal of using this platform to amplify the stories of people of color. Jim Thorpe was born around May 28, 1887, 
We're not sure. He didn't have a birth certificate. Into a small one-room cabin near the modern town of Prague, Oklahoma. Again, we're not really sure exactly where, because that area was still, literally, Indian territory. To parents of the Sac and Fox Nation, who were both mixed white and native. Jim grew up on Native American land, fishing, hunting, playing sports, and learning from the tribal elders. A poor but happy childhood lasted about nine years, until Jim's twin brother died from pneumonia. You'd have to be heartless to begrudge young Jim his acting out and running away, which resulted in him being sent to an Indian school in Lawrence, Kansas. If you scroll your podcast app all the way back to August 2018, before I was even using episode numbers, you'll find the episode Stolen Innocence, where you can hear more about Indian schools, as well as other real bummers that are important to know. And link in the show notes. A few years after losing his twin brother, his mother died giving birth. And shortly thereafter, his father died as well. Now an orphan, Jim fled his hometown and ended up attending the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which was founded for the purpose of integrating Native Americans into the American way of life by, quote, eliminating their Indianness. It was there that a 17-year-old, understandably depressed Jim Thorpe, walked by the school's track and field practice on the way back to his dorm. He saw all the boys running and jumping and thought to himself, I can do that better than they can. And that was when 5-foot-8-inch Thorpe saw some upperclassmen practicing with a 5-foot-9-inch high jump bar. Thorpe cleared the bar with ease, despite the fact that he was wearing overalls. The next day, he was approached by Carlisle's head track and football coach, Glenn Pop Warner. Thorpe was worried he was in trouble for something, but Warner told him, Son, you've only broken the school record in the high jump, that's all. Warner helped Thorpe become a multi-sport superstar in high school and later in college. He dominated the high jump, lacrosse, baseball, football, even ballroom dancing, winning the Intercollegiate Ballroom Dancing Championship. I want to make a bow nose reference here, but I've been feeling old enough as it is. Thorpe was unstoppable with a football in his hands, leading his football team to the NCAA championship. While playing running back, defensive back, place kicker, and punter, he scored a record 25 touchdowns that season. He began to get national attention, but his star really started rising with the 1912 Olympics in Stockholm. Thorpe qualified in four different events, high jump, naturellement, long jump, pentathlon, which is five events, and decathlon, which is 10. The 100-meter, long jump, shot put, high jump, 400-meter, 110-meter hurdle, discus throw, hole vault, javelin, and 1,500-meter. He had a lot on, is all I'm saying. He won gold after winning four of the five pentathlon events, long jump, discus, sprint, and wrestling. The only reason he didn't win the javelin was because he'd never thrown a javelin before. Being the preternaturally gifted athlete that he was, Thorpe still took third. That same day, he finished fourth and seventh in the individual events of long jump and high jump, respectively. Why this precipitous drop in performance? At some point, no one knows exactly when, some unknown miscreant stole Thorpe's shoes. He wasn't going to not compete, and Thorpe managed to find some more shoes in a garbage bin. Note that I refer to them as some, not a pair. They were different shoes, of two different sizes, and two different ways of not fitting properly. 
But he made it work. He was the decathlon that really cemented Thorpe's legacy. He destroyed the competition, setting a record score that would stand for 15 years and still ranks highly to this day. Legend has it that upon receiving the gold medal at the medal stand, King Gustav of Sweden told him, You, sir, are the greatest athlete in the world. Whether that's true or not, it's led to a tradition of dubbing the decathlon winner the world's greatest athlete. Thorpe arrived home from the Olympics to a hero's welcome, now one of the world's most famous athletes. Not one to sit about, shortly thereafter, he broke the Amateur Athletic Union's all-around championship record by winning seven of the ten events in their competition and placing second in the other three. He had the admiration of the masses and the respect of many of his peers. But it was time for another unnecessary dramatic twist in his life. Several months after Thorpe got his gold medals, a reporter uncovered that Thorpe had been paid to play minor league baseball in 1909 and 1910. That salary of $2 a game violated the Olympics' strict rules against professional athletes competing, and the Olympic Committee threw the book at Thorpe, stripping him of his gold medals. That was, in this reporter's opinion, bullshit, since the book in question stated that protests had to be made within 30 days of the closing ceremonies of the game, and the first newspaper report didn't appear until six months after the games had ended. On the plus side, though, it did attract the attention of shed loads of professional sports teams, and offers came rolling in. Upon being asked why he did it, Thorpe wrote, I hope I will be partly excused by the fact that I am simply an Indian schoolboy and did not know all such things. In fact, I did not know that I was doing wrong, because I was doing what I knew several other college men had done, except they did not use their own name. A week later, our comeback kid signed with the New York Giants to play pro baseball. He was kind of out of practice with baseball and got off to a rocky start. While the crowds did come to see him, Thorpe said he felt more like a sideshow attraction than an actual contributing player. But baseball was the only sport at the time where one could really earn a living playing. Thorpe chose to continue on with baseball until 1919, playing for the Giants, the Reds, and the Braves. In 1920, at age 33, he went back to playing football, eventually becoming the first president of the American Football League, the predecessor to the NFL. He even played pro basketball for three years. There is so much more about Jim Thorpe's amazing life, and after his death, that I could have included today, but I may make that the next bonus mini-episode on our Patreon, patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, where folks like Mike S., George K., Eleanor L., Drew from Real Feels Podcast, and David N. Get at least one bonus mini-episode per month, get to vote on a topic for the main show, plus, and I don't think I've ever mentioned this, you also get an exclusive discount to our merch store, which you can check out by going to yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch. I bought myself one of the Ask Me About the Maggot Cheese shirts. I will eventually take a picture and put it on social media, Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod. Bonus fact, Jim Thorpe was 37 before he became a U.S. citizen. Wait a minute, you say. I know, right? The U.S. government didn't consider the Native Americans to be citizens until an act of Congress that year. To needlessly quote my favorite show again, we ought to leave this world behind. By the age of 41, Jim Thorpe's athletic career was essentially over. 
and the time in his day previously occupied by sports was now occupied by drinking. He took odd jobs and did some acting, living quietly until heart failure shuffled him off at age 65. Over the years, supporters of Thorpe attempted to have his Olympic title reinstated, but were repelled from the gates each time. Two prominent names in the effort were author Robert Wheeler and his wife Florence Ridlin. Wheeler and Ridlin established the Jim Thorpe Foundation and gained support in U.S. Congress. Armed with that support, and evidence of the 30-day objection time having been up, they succeeded in making their case to the IOC. The good news is, in October 1982, the IOC Executive Committee approved Thorpe's reinstatement. The bad news is, the IOC declared Thorpe co-champion with the athletes they'd given the medals to, both of whom had publicly stated that they supported Thorpe. The following January, the IOC presented two of Thorpe's adult children with commemorative medals, not the original medals, sadly, as those had been stolen from the museum in which they were being kept. The fight's not over, though. In July 2020, a petition began circulating, calling for the IOC to reinstate Thorpe as the sole winner of his events in 1912. The petition is backed by Picture Works Entertainment, which is making a film about Thorpe called Bright Path. But in keeping with the tradition of thorns on his roses, it seems to be trapped in pre-production limbo. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. When Barsham asked about joint gold medals, he looked at Tim Barry. Tim Barry looked at him, and they immediately agreed without a word, and Tim Barry leapt into Barsham's arms. Medal sharing is rare, but it also happened in the 1936 Berlin Games, when Japanese pole vaulters Shuhei Nishida and Suie Oe tied for second place. Oe agreed to take the bronze while Nishida took the silver. But upon returning to Japan, they had a jeweler cut their medals in half, swap the halves around, and fuse them back together, creating half-silver, half-bronze medals, now known as the Medals of Friendship. Remember, you can find the source links and the script at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.